Welcome to No Hope, the podcast. Can Julianne Moore sing? Nobody knows. Oh my goodness, we're back. We are. That's how it <laughs> happens. It just like that. You start talking it's like magic. and it's recording and you hope that uh, it'll make sense, that you'll form complete sentences. And it so rarely does. And that's why yeah. we usually launch our uh, our latest episodes with our rewind segment. Rewind! That's true, but we should probably say that I'm Tim Omiller. And I'm Scott Schneider. And you've found, stumbled upon, <laughs> or, 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 or sought after No Hope. The podcast. the podcast, Outcasts in the Arts. The outcast. um, Thank you for remembering that. Thank yeah, you for remembering that. I want. Here. I have to. I there's one thing that I want to say before we jump into okay. that segment, which is in the last thirty days, which I believe is approximately when we started mm-hmm. season two. Mm-hmm. You know, I am fascinated by where people listen. You to really the, are. You're the like podcast. fixated, fixated I, on this. Ge- the, ge- the geography of the uh, of our listeners. I I check at least once a day to see wow. how many listens we have and where they're coming from. Are we and represented course, on every continent, including Antarctica? Well. No, we are definitely not represented in, on, on Antarctica, but we are represented North America, South America, yep. Europe, okay. uh, Russia. Okay. Well, well, wait. Yeah. Wait, is Russia a con- No, it's Asia. No. <laughs> Russia is not a country. <laughs> Geography 101. <laughs> so we might have to do a rewind on Tim is, learning. Is Russia a country? Re- is, a is, no, I said, is it a continent? Yeah, no. Um, yes, Asia. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Okay, yep. um, but so we're we're represented on all of those. What about we, Australia? Anything? We are represented Woo-hoo! on Austra- Australia. Australia. All right. In the last thirty days, okay. we have had one listen. Yeah. In Australia, we are also. This is just a few of the countries. I want to give oh a shout God. out. If you're listening in Kazakhstan, yeah. In Brazil, in Spain, or Greece, or France, or the Netherlands, or Canada, or Ireland, or the UK, or the Bel- or, or the Belgium, or Belgium, or the Russian Federation, we thank you. Yeah. And of course, to all of our listeners right here in the good old United States of America that uh, is still trying to figure out exactly you know, what and who we are in the world, we also thank you for listening. Yay. That's that's my my spiel. little um, my little spiel. spiel. I just I just I do find it. See, I'd be really interested what uh, what what if your ha- out of your hashtags are getting people to listen. Like, is it your Munchausen by proxy hashtags it's, or what? These are unfortunately I don't know <laughs> if there's yeah, any we don't, way for we don't us know those to stats. track that. I think we would have hmm. to have some more sophisticated software. Well, perhaps. All right. Um, but yes, there you go. So you never know when you're going through all of these rewinds, you might be talking to someone in Brazil. For I love example. that. I love that. So uh what what are we what are we talking about today with our 
with with what were the stupid things that we said okay. that we didn't know? Uh, well, some of them it's correcting stupid things, and sometimes it's just like, oh, I would be more interested to know more Elaboration. about that. So yes, this yes. was um, we were talking about Liza Minnelli and Flora in the Red Menace. And we were like, oh, like how commonplace, and we thought probably not commonplace, uh, is it for somebody to win like a leading actress Tony oh, for a that, show that that's like angle. not successful? Uh, we were, you know, commercially successful is sort of what we were, we, 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 we were taking that to mean. Um, so I just trolled back through and looked at uh, leading actress wins for the last couple decades and found you know a couple that are worth mentioning um in 1984 cheetah rivera won for leading actress for the rink uh the rink is a candor and edge <sighs> show uh which opened on february 9th 1984 uh it ran for 204 performances in 29 previews which is not a particularly long run um uh, definitely not no in the new york times not even a year no and the New York Times critic Frank Rich praised Rivera, but described the show as turgid and sour, filled with phony, at times mean-spirited content and empty pretensions. Of the book he wrote, Mr. McNally is a smart and witty playwright, but you'd never know it from this synthetic effort. His dialogue is banal, and his characters are ciphers. I thought that was Terrence McNally. Yeah. I didn't know um, that. I don't know that show at all. <laughs> I don't know it, but I remember reading about it because I used, I was really obsessed with Terrence McNally in oh, yeah. undergrad and read a lot of his work. Yeah. And I, but I didn't read that. Huh. Yeah. And when you I perked up, I was re- like, how the hell do you know the rink? Like, yeah, I don't even know this musical. I, it's because of Terrence McNally. Huh. And I will say I, that it's funny. Cause I feel like Terrence McNally is is a great writer and mm-hmm. who also has had quite a lot of misses like hit, hits and misses. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I huh. saw, did you see mothers and sons? I did not No, That was, I think his last major okay. work that was on Broadway. Tyne Daly was in it. Oh, Fred okay. Weller, who I, I, I adorable love <laughs> Fred Weller. Do you remember him from um, Stonewall, that little indie film? Oh, we watched that yeah, together. I totally yeah, remember that, that was, film. Yeah. I saw he, that like actually, quite a few times actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it was just terrible. It's just a really <laughs> oh. just overwrought, overwritten, That's unfortunate. Uh, badly, ri- you know, so I, it's, it's interesting because he yeah. also, as we, as you re- I'm sure remember, he also wrote the book for ragtime. Of course. That's, and, I mean, that's like how I know him most. Yeah. But, and know. love, valor, compassion, yeah, obviously which is a fucking a brilliant play. I mean, yeah, mm-hmm. like dozens, dozens, if not hundreds of no. plays. Um, certainly dozens of full-length plays, but I would imagine hundreds if you count all of the shorter work. Anyway, okay, that's interesting. So yeah, another candor and ebb. Another candor and ebb. Another candor as well. Yeah, yes. they, they, speaking of, they've had like a lot of hits and misses for sure. Um, but yeah, two more examples. Uh, in 1986, Bernadette Peters won for Song and Dance, which is that oh. Andrew Lloyd Webber show where it's like one yes. act is song and one act is dance. Um that opened on September 8th, 1985 at the Royale Theater uh, and closed on November 8th, 1986 after 474 performances, which is a more respectable run. Yeah. I was iffy, like, oh, can I include this? But then I read this. Uh, in Frank Rich's New York Times review of the Broadway production, he wrote, Miss Peters is more than talented. As an actress, singer, comedian, and all-around warming presence, she has no peer in the musical theater right now. In her half of song and dance, she works so hard you'd think she were pleading for for mercy before a, before a firing squad. Yet for all of the vocal virtue 
virtuosity, tempestuous fits, and the husky tone charm she brings to her one-woman musical marathon. We never care if her character lives or dies. Wow. <laughs> she won a Tony for that. Okay. Uh, yeah, I barely know that show, but uh, I do know the uh, Tell Me on a Sunday. Find a with a flying That was my audition song really? once. Wow. Yes. Did you, get, yes. did you get the part? <laughs> uh, pretty sure not. Okay. I have one more. Uh, in 1994, Donna Murphy won as leading actress for Passion, uh, Passion which is a Ugh. Stephen Sondheim and James LaPone show. God, I sat through that <laughs> Did you really? Oh, my God. A concert version with Mary I've Maggie, actually, actually never seen Passion, which is, like, shocking. But uh, I think uh, I watched, like, they, they did, like, a... Dreadful. Yeah. They filmed it. Right. I definitely yes, saw I it so. once via a filmed version and like once yes. was enough. Um, My dear friend Therese got uh, got me tickets. It was a, it was yep. on Broadway. It was like a yeah. major. Yeah yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that's impressive. You saw it because it ran only ran a total of 280 performances. It opened on uh, May 9th, 1994 and closed on January 7th, 1995. Interestingly enough, that made it the shortest running musical ever to win the Tony Award for Best Musical because apparently oh it won Best Musical. God. Yeah. Well, I didn't see that run. I saw a concert oh. version probably in like 2004, okay. let's just okay. say, okay. somewhere okay. on there. Yeah. Marin Mazzy, Marin Mazzy, um, why do I always say Mazzy? Marin Mazzy played the leading female, the lead, yeah. the female lead. I don't know. She's rolling in her grave right now. Furious at you. I mean, she was amazing. But of course, oof, I don't think was I don't up. think it would be possible for her to not be amazing in anything. Just putting that out True. there. True. Um, that's what I looked up for that. Okay. Um, moving on, we, in our rent episode, uh, Mark brought up the uh, lottery ticket history. You know how it started as like a rush sort of situation, and mentioned that rent pioneered that. Uh, so I just kind of went back to corroborate that, and like everything he said was completely accurate. I found a Today Ticks article from actually just a few weeks ago um, where it said 25 years ago, Rent pioneered the first Broadway ticket lottery to enter diehard fans dubbed Rent Heads would sleep in the street for the chance to score first come, first serve $20 tickets. Um, at the time, people were saying Rent isn't a Broadway show, and I was saying Broadway is just real estate. Lead producer Kevin McCollum, who produced the show with Jeffrey Seller and Alan Gordon, remembers at the time, recalling his own days of coming into the city and waiting in line to scour discounted standing room tickets. Uh, this is an epic story. What we need to do is make sure young people can come see it. We need to have cheap tickets, and we need to have them available, and let's put them in the front row. Um, this was actually like great but also like a little self-serving uh because in the next paragraph it's like that energy from the front row made up of bohemians uh akin to the characters on stage radiated through the theater each night as the lottery winners would leap to their feet at curtain call creating a resounding trickle effect not only was the show pioneering a new kind of access those new audiences created a built-in wow. word-of-mouth marketing machine for the very people who saw themselves in the show 
yeah, and then the article kind of goes on to say that like the paradigm shifted again because uh, now it's like digital. So with today ticks, you can go in, you know, and enter the Hamilton virtual lottery every day. Uh, yeah, every day. I entered Harry yeah, Potter yeah. quite a I lot. Actually, the first I... time I remember doing something online, I think was for the public for Shakespeare in the Park because I remember entering oh. something for hair like every fucking day and like never hitting it. But uh, so yeah. Anyway, that's all I looked up on that. But yeah, Mark was correct about everything. Not that I didn't expect him to be. Because if you didn't right. know, he fucking loves rent. He loves <laughs> rent. <laughs> um, all right, I got a couple more. Uh, it's it's fun, yeah. like just a tiny tangent, yeah. just Because I I'm Here sure I tangents. told the story before. Uh, the whole thing about putting people in the front row that like want to be there. Mm-hmm. I told you the Elton John story, right? But have I talked about it on on here? I don't I think remember. so. When when Laura and. Uh, it was, I think it was just Laura and Matthew and I were going to see Elton John at the Hollywood Bowl. And I had gotten us tickets knowing we were going to move to L.A. You know, we were in like row X. Yep. So they were probably at the time still like fairly expensive. They were probably like 40 bucks, which was, you know, this was a few years ago. Um, and we were on our way up there. And I'm pretty sure I had already bought my T-shirt and my program. And this was the second time I had seen Elton John. Um, I'm sorry. What? That you what? had to see rent, uh, Elton John twice. That I had to live. see Rent? Yeah, um, I, I think it was the Made in England tour. I can't remember for sure. And some guy stopped us and mm. said, hey, are you big fans? Which, of course, I was like an advertisement for a big fan. <laughs> right. I already had my T-shirt and my made, like enormous program. You were wearing like And I was like, yeah. Oh, no, you were wearing well, Yeah, like, exactly, the exactly. Dodger I was like, or the, whatever. The, the Daffy Duck. Yeah, oh, I was yeah, wearing like the Daffy Duck or the Dodger. <laughs> right. um, and Or the white, or the, the Mozart. Yeah. Um, right. and, and, and he, and I, we were like, I was like, yes. And he's like, would you like to be on the front row? And I instantly, because we had only been in LA for like a couple of months at the most, I was, we were all instantly skeptical and you could yeah, tell that like, he was kind of amused. Yeah. Yeah. He was kind of amused with us, mm. but, but we, we kept of course talking to him and finally he was like, yes. When Elton John comes to a venue, he buys out the, especially the Hollywood bowl because I don't, have you been there? No, there's like, wait, it's like actually, a, yeah, I have like the one you know how there's like, into LA. Yeah, yeah, there's like the bowl part, like mm-hmm. the stadium part. Mm-hmm. But then there's this mass, this massive area in the front that's all like tables and, mm. you know, table service, waiter service for all like the big wigs. Yeah, I don't even remember so that. a lot of times what happens is either people don't show up yep. because they don't really give a shit or they they're oh, like God. on their phones or sure, like sure, not sure, paying sure. any attention. So he would buy these. He would basically have them add two rows to <laughs> yeah. in front of the table service and then get pick people from oh the God. audience and move them and we were on the fucking that front is amazing row. but like as and a performer was, you obviously yeah, want people yeah, who are exactly. like totally and that super was, into it and you're always going to fixate on the front like you know in our uh, it wasn't the hollywood bowl but some of our like duplex shows it's like i remember seeing you know it's like you look out it's like you see people who, who people who are like totally enthusiastic versus somebody who's like miserable like, sipping their right. drink and checked out absolutely checked out absolutely. yeah 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 oh. so i the, just to wrap that story up i got to shake his hand and oh. fucking george michael came on as a guest because that was the, at the time that they had released the duet of don't oh yeah well so that's it was more pretty exciting amazing. than uh, yeah. seeing elton john but anyway okay proceed um what else has played at the winter garden theater besides cats beetlejuice uh, Good. Mia. Ding, 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 ding. Well, I'm That's not even going to bother. 
Uh, no, prior to Cats parking there between 1982 and 2001, notable productions included West Side Story in 1957, Funny Girl, wow. yeah, right, Funny Girl in 1964, um, Follies in 1971, uh, 42nd Street in 1980, and then the you know massive Cats run. Uh, and then after Cats, notable productions included, like you said, Mamma Mia, which also parked there from 2001 through 2014. Um, wow. Yeah, right? That had a fucking crazy long run. Um, School of Rock in 2015, which also had a long run, like four years. And then Beetlejuice in 2019. And then Beetlejuice was vacating for The Music Man with Hugh Jackman, which, of course, has not and yet Sun happened. Foster. Oh, and Sudden Buster, yeah, yeah um yeah that's it okay um, wow i don't think i've ever been in that theater i've never seen anything at winter garden i guess that's i'm so understanding weird. that neither have i yeah that's such <laughs> a strange I, like, like such a strange mama mia and i yeah. wanted to I actually kind of wanted to see school of rock out of curiosity but then never went but yeah yeah that's weird okay. that's really weird <laughs> i've never yeah. been into that theater um uh, this was when we were talking to Kyle. What's the name of the Real Housewives Instagram account where songwriters turn various scenes from the Real Housewives franchise into like actual musical theater songs? Uh, so yeah, the Instagram handle is Rony Musical. Rony like Real Housewives of New York. So R H O N Y oh, Musical. I want. I didn't yeah. know what that meant when I saw that oh, on Google Doc. <laughs> I was like, "What is You're like, Rony? What is Rony, Rony like, Musical? Republicans well, on New York? If you were yeah. a house." Was fanatic like me, only you would know. Uh, need yes, man. I don't know. Ooh, that's good. Yeah, that's good. um, that's good. But it's not okay. just New York Housewives. I was looking at it earlier today, and it's like all the Real Housewives city oh. cities. So okay, yeah, okay, they are they're not uh, New York specific, uh, but it's really fucking funny. So check it out. Um, yeah, onto some wild party things. Uh. Kyle had mentioned it was a banned book, which we were like, oh, that's interesting. And then later I was like, I kind of want to know more about that. And I kind of learned a little bit more. Uh, so, yes, The Wild Party, as we discussed with Kyle, is a book-length narrative poem written by Joseph March. It was published in 1926, and the poem was widely banned, first in Boston where it was published, for having content viewed as lewd. The poem was a success notwithstanding, and perhaps in part due to the controversy surrounding the work. Controversy that sells. Exactly. Uh, oh my God, I'm going to probably butcher the name. You're going to laugh at me. Louis Untemeyer, the famed American poet, so famed. I didn't know how to pronounce his last name. Anthologist, critic, and editor declared at the time of its original release, it is repulsive and fascinating, vicious and vivacious, uncompromising, unashamed, and unremitting, unremittingly powerful. It is an amazing tour de force. Um, a new hardcover co- hard co- edition was released in 1994 with the subtitle The Lost Classic. It featured about 50 black and white illustrations by Art Spiegelman, a longtime admirer of the poem. 
Uh, I thought this was really fun and interesting. In his introduction to the volume, Spiegelman recalls his first meeting with writer William Burroughs. He indicates that the conversation was stilted until Spiegelman asked if the elderly Burroughs had ever encountered March's poem. Burroughs told him he had first read the book in 1938 when he was a graduate student at Harvard and that it was the book that made uh, that made him want to be a writer. Burroughs then recited the opening couplet of the poem in a manner that gave Spiegelman the impression that Burroughs could have continued the recitation, or the recitation perhaps even to the final lines. Wow. Yeah. God, that man must have had quite a brain because he was like a fucking heroin addict yeah, for I know, right? quite some time. Wow. And to think about having that memory and how old this is how old was he? This was uh, like I'm not sure. But yeah. I mean this was mid nineties. Yeah. So. I mean he was ancient. <laughs> he like, would he, have been I mean ancient. I God, yeah. I feel bad if if anyone, you know, uh, if my mother is listening because I don't consider my mother ancient, but yeah, he was don't probably, he, but he was he, probably I getting don't, on. I know yeah, he was, he was getting definitely on. getting on. Yeah. I mean, he lived a really long life, mm-hmm. which is, you know, you never know. You mm. just never know. It's like those, those, uh, those older women who say or that like chain they have smoking, to have a whiskey every day. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah exactly. 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 Like never you know, did anything little, healthy. Oh my God. A couple well, of my, decades of heroin addiction. <laughs> it really doesn't bring you down. She'd always like, you know, hand me a 20 and like have me go down and buy a pack of cigs and like a bottle of <laughs> rum for her like when i would visit at the corner store and i would oh my god but yeah and she would do pound she would just drink coffee from the second she woke up to the second she like went to bed at night and like i've never saw her drink a glass of water i mean and she lived like into her like early 80s like there was a time in her uh, assisted living facility that like Every single person in the facility, like something like horrible, you know, ripped through it, like some bad flu, and she was fine. Like, I mean, it's like, it's like you said, you just don't know. It's like bodies are weird. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Anyway. Um, uh, just, uh, just on that, uh, quickly on the uh, Wild Party poem, in the second stanza, there's a line, Queenie was sexually ambitious. For some reason, in the last episode, I quoted it as sexually ambiguous, which is, of course, oh, a very what? different thing. Very different. One of those moments where I listened back. I was like, what? Why did I say that? Um, okay. Still on the Wild Party, the creative team, we wanted to know like who was on the production team for it. The director was Gabriel Barr, whose credits include Amazing Grace on Broadway, um, Almost Maine at the Daryl Roth Theater, and John and Jen at the Lambs Theater, which was also a, um, a Andrew Lippa musical. Um, okay. Choreographer was Mark Dendy, who received a Drama Desk Award for Outstanding Choreography for that production. Uh, he also choreographed Broadway's Taboo. I looked that up. Um, scenic design. I wish I had seen that. I, can't, I do, I too. Yeah, I, I mean, remember, obviously it didn't get good reviews, yeah, but I still wish I'd no. seen it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that seeing it in London would have been mm-hmm. the, the place to see it. Totally. But I think I still wish I would have yeah, seen it here. Same. Um, scenic design for the Wild Party off Broadway was David Gallo, uh, who has many credits, including uh, receiving a Tony for the Drowsy Chaperone. Um, in costume design, I will completely butch this, butcher the name, even though that he has like a million credits, is Martin Pacladinez. Oh, my gosh. Don't know. Uh, who has Tony's for Thoroughly Modern Millie and the 2000 revival of Kiss Me, Kate. Okay. Um, yeah, those are my rewinds. Okay. Okay. 
No, okay, good. Um, we also talked about Hades Town. I mm, can't remember if no. that was with just that you. That was or... with no, that was with Mark because we were talking about Broadway oh. bo- boyfriends, and he said he'd like to fuck chorus oh. boys. And then I that's threw, right, that's right, that's right, that's right. Threw okay. someone that's out, right. isn't it? Yeah, it was a whole thing. And I yeah. said something about like, oh no, but it was about Terrence Mann. We were also talking about Terrence. Like there were several. Oh, Hades you're Town right. Moments. There was because anyway. you thought Terrence Mann was in was uh, Patrick yeah, Page. Yeah. Yeah. And that's not who okay. Terrence Mann is. Terrence Mann is Terrence Mann, <laughs> and Patrick Page is, Patrick is in Hades Town, and his name is Patrick <laughs> Page. He was also in Saint Joan, which I saw, oh. um, which okay. at, was at uh, MTC. Uh, he was in Spider Man as the Green Goblin, uh, and he was in Scar as the Lion. <laughs> as in, he, he was, was in, in Scar. <laughs> he was in Lion King as Scar. He was in the Lion King as Scar. <laughs> I think he originated that role. I, really? I, I was like, what, I didn't somewhat, think I had yeah. known who he was until Hades Town, but maybe I did. Well, he obviously looked very different because he was wearing some amazing yeah. Julie Taymor stuff. Yeah. Um, so the Hot Chorus Boys. There. Uh, so Tim Hughes is the one that mm-hmm. uh, Mark was referencing. Did you know that he was the strong man in The Greatest Showman? No. I didn't either, but really? he was. And then huh. he also, he's done a ton of regional work. So mm-hmm. I'm sure it's, it's you know, knowing like the, the fucking casting world and theater, he's probably like, oh, there's that really big guy that can sing. Let's get him. You know, he has oh, sure, to be sure, that sure. guy because yeah. there's not that many people yeah. that have that size. I mean, he's like... What did he say? I think he's like 6'4". He's like Alexander Skarsgård tall, right? He's totally. Like really yeah. tall and, and, and big, a, like fucking huge. What one refers um, to as a jungle gym. Jungle gym, exactly. So you want to climb. A, or a jungle Tim. Um, his, <laughs> <laughs> and also John Krause. The, the, so that was my kind of little mm-hmm. crush during Hades Town. Of course, in addition to um, the angelically faced and bizarre character. Uh, what is his name? Oh, God. He was in Spider-Man also. Oh. Um, the main character. Reed? The main actor. that up? Reed? Um, Reed. Reed. <laughs> Carney. Car- Reed Carney, right? Reeve Carney. That's right. Reeve. It's V. Reeve. Reeve. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. All right. Reeve. Between two our got two it. brains, we have one brain. Wow. Yeah, we okay. got there. I mean, obviously, yeah. obviously, Reeve Carney, like I was totally in love with Reeve Carney because, I mean, his singing voice is insane. Um, but John Krause was the chorus boy that I was that I was totally in love with. And he did the national tour of Wicked and mm-hmm. the international tour of American Idiot. So he probably knows um, our friend Ashley. Yeah. Uh, Tobias. I'm sure. Uh, because that's what. And, and didn't some uh, didn't Kennedy also do that? Could I be. I don't remember that. I think that's but, how they met. Hmm. Anyway. OK, moving on, moving on, moving on. Um, Stage production. Oh wait, I'll, I'll you know what? I'll start with the 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 MTV VJs. So I went down a quick rabbit hole. This was surprisingly easy to find. <laughs> there is a Wikipedia page of MTV VJs. Oh, okay. Um, these were all names that I recognized: Adam Curry, Carmen Electra, oh, yeah, Carson Daly. I had forgotten Carson Daly started as a VJ before he did Total, Total Request, Request Live. Live. Yeah. Daisy Fuentes. Mm-hmm. She went on to do something else too, right? Like some other hosting position or something. I, don't know I think about Carmen that, Electra but... might have done too. Colin Quinn, and he's a comedian, right? And he didn't he do Saturday Night Live? Are those the same people? No. Yeah. I don't know. 
I don't they know. Have I feel to like be. I disbelieve you on that one, but okay, that's fine. We can look that up. Okay. We can rewind on that. Dave Holmes, oh yeah, of who course. Scott McLean had a date with once, yeah, randomly. More downtown date, Julie but... Brown. <laughs> um, you remember Don, downtown of Julie course. Brown, who is Down. Welsh, not to be confused with Julie Brown, who is the redheaded comedian VJ. Sure. Yeah. Do you remember her? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. She was Most actually, when I looked I at her career, I was like, Julie, comedian Julie Brown did stuff. Like, she was in Clueless. I didn't know that was Julie Brown. Did Which you know one that? was she in Julie? Uh, she was like she... the the coach setup or something. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Would never have been able to imagine that. John Norris. I remember John Norris. Mm-hmm. A very, a very um, sleek face. Kennedy. Remember Kennedy? Yeah, Mark mentioned uh, Kennedy. Um, Martha Quinn, who is now, by the way, 61 years old, which made me feel crazy. (laughs) Matt Penfield, who I think was the guy who hosted... um, the show was like alternative. It was like a Sunday night, like sort of alternative rock show or something. It sounds vaguely familiar. This is a very strange story. Right after the first Lord of the Rings came out, I was meeting Riley. I think this was around dose time Mm -hmm. or like right after that or something down in the East Village. And I walked around the corner at Astor Place and standing in front of the vitamin shop. Do you know that that's that vitamin shop Mm -hmm. right at Astor and Broadway? Yeah. Standing in front of the vitamin shop as if they were like there to sign autographs was Matt Pinfield and Elijah Wood. And it was right after fucking Lord of the Rings come out. It was absolutely bizarre. It was like soap dish. It was like Sally Field and soap dish. (laughs) Like they were, she was looking for some just attention. Like, Two, three weekends ago. Fucking brilliant. It is her best work, FYI. It, because hey, she's like playing. You stop No, that. I'm being serious because she's like basically playing a parody of herself. Well, but, but she has a lot of great work. That's what it, I'm saying. Yeah. I mean, I, um, it's true. But Polly Shore. Yeah. Polly Shore. Of course, was Polly a Shore. DJ. I didn't He was in like that. a bunch of bad movies. I thought he was movies. that weird. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's how Eventually, I remember him. Yeah. Um, Simon Rex, who of course we mentioned, mm-hmm. and I didn't, I forgot to look up more about his jerk off videos, mm-hmm. but this is the, um, so the original five, there was a separate Wikipedia page about the original five oh, DJs, Nina Blackwood, Mark Goodman, JJ Jackson, Alan Hunter, and Martha Quinn. Mm-hmm. Uh, out of those five, That's I like only I really, really remember Martha yeah, Quinn. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Hmm. And then don't forget Kurt Loder, who was our, the first news correspondent. Yeah. Um, Okay. Enough of that. Stage production of A Clockwork Orange was featuring Jono Davies was his name. That's right. And he started with that production in 2017 in London. Mm -hmm. And it received rave Yeah, I remember that. People loved it. This is going to be great. Um, It came to the U.S. and landed with a giant thud. (laughs) It really did. Like, it was not... It, yeah, it was just, I don't know. I don't know what I we don't were know. expecting. I feel like maybe I wanted it to be in a different space. That's true. Like for it sure. was off yeah. Broadway, but it was in that, you know, it was a New, New World, World Stages, Stages complex. Yeah. So. And it was I, very, it was in a big theater yeah, and it was very yeah. proscenium. Totally. Rate. I wish it could have would have um, been like grittier space. Yeah. More yeah. Rough around it was, the edges, but. 
it, but even then it yeah. was just a, it was still a lot, weird. it was a, it was a lot different than mm-hmm. I think what a lot of people expected. Um, but John O'Davies, by the way, was in Kingsman, the secret service, which I did not remember. I saw that movie. Did you see that movie with Taron Edgerton? Sure did not. Oh, it's really, it's, it's a fun movie. Hmm. Um, and then like I was talking about, he was recently on Hunter's. Um, which was an Amazon series about Nazi hunters, uh, which is based in real facts. Although the the series goes completely off real the rails, facts, of course, as opposed to alternative Re- facts. Exactly, or... <laughs> exactly. Uh, which also stars Al Pacino and Logan Lerman, who is mm-hmm. one of my Hollywood boyfriends. Okay, finally, finally, Greece, you are gonna fucking finally. die the, over this. Oh, is it? Were you talking about the hot pink? Trash, yes, trashy, the hot rosy pink one. Grease, nineteen ninety four Rosie O'Donnell like revival. Uh, it, after twenty previews, it, it, it was directed and choreographed <laughs> by Jeff Calhoun, and it premiered on May eleventh, nineteen ninety four, at the Eugene O'Neill, and it ran for one thousand five hundred and five performances, okay. which is what five years, yeah. more than five years. Wow. Um, these are a few of the opening cast members: Rosie O'Donnell that you'll that you'll recognize. Rosie O'Donnell, Rizzo, Rizzo Hunter yeah. Foster, oh, okay. Roger, Megan Mullally was oh, Marty, really, and Billy Porter was the Teen Angel. I did remember the Billy Porter. I did. Well, I said that, that when yeah. we talked about it. No, but when you said it, I was like, yeah, no, I yeah. remember that. But um, but this is the, okay. So this production. So talk about like pioneers in the mm-hmm. field with 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 reference to Rent being the pioneer of the lottery. This production of Greece set a new standard for star replacements, casting celebrities from different entertainment sectors for limited engagements. Some of these notable performers were Linda Blair, Chubby <laughs> Checker. Sheena Easton, Ooh. Debbie Gibson, Jasmine Guy, okay. Al Jarreau, okay. Lucy Lawless, Joe Piscopo, oh my Mackenzie God. Phillips, John Cicada, and Brooke Shields. I like maybe that fucking maybe crazy? would have seen like one of those people, one of those people in that, and I it would have been was... Deborah. Oh, Gibson. and then yes. The the uh, U.S. national tour of that production oh, yeah. started in September of '94 okay. in New Haven, Connecticut, and the opening tour cast included Sally Struthers ah, as Miss Lynch. So I did so not make that up. You were it was, correct. Yeah, it was. So, it was something that production. It was sure something. I want to get to the final note of the finale without falling into the orchestra pit. Oh, set your sights a little higher. <laughs> no, really. I, I get so blinded out there by the lights that I can't see the edge of the stage that my biggest fear is falling in the orchestra pit. Well, so if I get to the end and I'm standing up and I yell the word grease, I've made it, babe. <laughs> I, I was really fascinated by all of those names. I, hmm. I mean, I wasn't John. I was Cicada. only here for a... Yeah. <laughs> Going like, back I mean, to our, had, uh, Who uh, did he play? <laughs> I don't know. I have to look that up. Like the Billy Porter role. I guess. I mean, that could have been the only thing. I was like, what did, who did, I mean, I guess Debbie Gibson was, uh, was, uh, Sandy, right? Sandy had to have have been, had to have been. Hmm. Cause she would have still been pretty young. Yeah. 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 yeah, I would think so. I would have seen that with her. Yeah. Just going to put that out there. All right, okay. let's. I'm done rewinding. Let's uh, right. let's get into it. Let's get into love and hate. And I have some hate for you, oh, so we should good. start. You need to heap on the love. And I have some love that you're gonna hate. Oh, so, good. Okay. <laughs> so you okay. Can, 
So you can really dig your heels in today. Um, all right, are you ready? I am ready. Okay, so the, <laughs> the musical that I love was a, a notorious flop on Broadway. It opened on November 16th, 1981 at the Alvin Theater to mostly negative reviews. While the score was widely praised, critics and audiences felt that the book was a problem and the themes off-putting. It ran for 44 previews and 16 performances, and its closing Ooh. ended a storied collaboration between a major producer and director uh, <clears throat> and a major musical theater writer, and it pretty much disillusioned its entire young cast of mostly unknown actors. But my experience with this musical, while a bit limited, has been uniformly positive, um, and I'll be focusing on that. They called Wait. it... Go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, so the, they called it a flop, but I call it a promising, ambitious, heartfelt, and yes, somewhat flawed piece of musical theater. The musical I'd like to talk about today. Wait, don't tell me, don't tell me. Is it is it a Sondheim it piece? It is. Okay. Yeah. Um, but you got that. So then you know the answer. Maybe you know the answer, but you don't know the answer. Is it Assassins? No. It's oh. Stephen Sondheim and George Firth's Merrily We Roll Along. Oh, okay. which it's possible yep. you don't know this show. At I don't all. know it. Okay, I don't know it. I just thought you might be disgusted because I'm talking about Sondheim. But... Oh, well, of course, but especially since it was obviously like a horrible musical that no one came to see. <laughs> wow. I mean, just to be clear here, we're like knee deep into season two, and this is only the second Sondheim musical I've brought in to talk about, whereas you've already brought up two. So I'm really just catching up. Um, wow. Okay. So I've been okay. exercising like a shit ton of restraint, actually. And these two musicals aren't even my favorite Sondheim musicals. That's not true. So You've already, this go. is only your second one? Yeah. What about Sunday in the Park with George is the only other yeah. Sondheim musical you talked yeah. about? Yeah. Wow. And you talked about okay. hating Sweeney Todd and liking company. So I'm just catching up. Okay. 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 Um, yeah. I'm mostly bringing this show to discuss because I, I just had like a kind of unique introduction to the show. Um, and it just has a, and because of that, I, uh, it has a fond place in my heart. Um, some quick details about the show first. Merrily We Roll Along is a musical with a book by George Firth and lyrics and music by Stephen Sondheim. It's based on the 1934 play of the same name by George S. Kaufman and Moss Hart. Uh, oh. This show was produced and directed by Hal Prince, and the spark for the show was through Hal's wife, Judy, who'd been suggesting to him that he should do a musical about teenagers, at which point he thought of this play. Um, as you do know, Hal Prince and Stephen Sondheim were a powerhouse duo before this production. They first worked together on West Side Story, and then from there moved on to Company, Follies, A Little Night Music, Pacific Overtures, and Sweeney Todd. So they were coming in pretty hot into this show. And it's pretty easy to see how everyone involved in the making of this could like see this as a potential hit in the making. Sure. Plot-wise. Yeah. And a Kaufman and Hart play, of course. Yeah. I mean, Although it was not huge. successful when I was reading about that uh, okay. play. It was like, and there was like some enormous cast of like 55 or something in the play. There's like a lot of characters in this. Um, but I won't, I'm not going to get into like great details of the plot. Um, 
But from a super high level, merrily we roll along. It begins in the present, although in this case the present was 1977, based on when this came out. Um, like 19, so this takes place between 1957 and 1977, and the action moves backwards in time, tracing the lives of wealthy, jaded composer Franklin Shepard and his two estranged friends, Mary and Charlie. It goes through each milestone of their personal and professional lives, both good and bad. As the years roll back over 20 years of his life, we see how Franklin went from penniless composer to wealthy producers and what he gave up to get there. Um, like I said, there's actually like a ton of characters and all sorts of machinations in the plot, and most of the criticism lobbed at the show was related to the book. Um, the producers, they had tryouts in New York rather than out of town, and the creative team learned pretty quickly that the audience had trouble actually following what was going on in the story, and consequently this is how the actors ended up all wearing sweatshirts emblazoned with their characters' names like for the oh, audience wow. to like keep track of what the fuck was going on. Um, which that doesn't really bode well. But um, beh- uh, beyond the confusion in the book... I mean, I would say probably the misfire was their decision to cast teenagers, some of whom were like quite young. Um, Because in the action of the the piece, you see these characters across 20 years of their lives. And most of the show, they're like knee deep in like highly adult situations. Like one of the three leads, like Mary, she's a film critic and an an alcoholic. There's career highlights and lowlights, infidelities, ex-husbands, mistresses, and so on and so on. It's just like a lot of thorny material. And I would imagine it was like really jarring for an audience to see like a legit teenager trying to sell the material and like up into the second last scene in the musical, there's still like young adults in New York with careers. So I'm just like, it makes like no sense to me that they like essentially hired like kids to do this show. Um, So I want to talk about my, my own personal history with this show. Um, Somehow in my junior high school years of binging any musical theater that I could get my hands on, I did not come into contact with the show, uh, which I guess is not too surprising given, you know, it was essentially a flop, um, which means my local library didn't have the CD or like undoubtedly I would have consumed it. My only limited knowledge was the song Old Friends, uh, and that was through my high school show choir. In my junior year, my megalomaniac, emotionally unstable high school show choir director decided that uh, for our spring concert, we would do this 20-year reunion concert, Um, and he invited alumni back to watch the show. And he used this song, Old Friends, as entrance music for himself, like he was like Carol Channing descending the stairs and Hello, Dolly. (laughs) (laughs) And so he, he like came in at the top of the show and sang these opening verses Hey, old friend, are you okay, old friend? What do you say, old friend? Are we or are we unique? Time goes by, everything else keeps changing. You and I, we get continued next week. Most friends fade or they don't make the grade. New ones are quickly made and in a pinch, sure, they'll do. But us, old friend, what's to discuss, old friend? Here's to us who's like us, damn few. Get continued. 
Now, before you think I'm being uncharitable, like, hey, this was a 20-year reunion concert. Maybe it was appropriate. Uh, this week, I reached out to my good friend from home, who was also in show choir with me, to verify this memory, which he did. And he also reminded me that old friends wasn't our choir director's first time at the rodeo, like giving himself a solo in his high school students' concerts. In one of our holiday shows, he <laughs> sang a sad New Year's <laughs> Eve ballad on stage to a stuffed dog that he was holding. Uh, but the most cringeworthy situation was the time he flew in his dancer friend from New York uh, so that they could sing and tap dance together on the song That's How You Jazz from Jelly's Last Jam. Do you know Jelly's Last Jam? I do know that, yes, actually. <laughs> so, quick aside on this. <laughs> it was a Broadway musical from 1992 about the life and career of Jelly Roll Morton, who was generally regarded as one of the primary driving forces behind the introduction of jazz to the American public in the early 20th century. The show also serves as social commentary on the African-American experience during the era. Our performance was in suburban Indianapolis in 1996, and my choir director, his dancer friend, and 95% of the choir was white. So you've got 40 people on stage uh, tap dancing and singing, ooh, 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 that's how you jazz. Some Creole curly cues and some street rag razzle attack. Oh, that tune struts, struts along, just like it owns a song. Then you hit it with a, that's how you jazz. And now the tune is going, daddy sing to me, give me some oomph for it. Uh, he also used like an affected Creole accent and was like, Nolans. Like, I actually have video and watched this a year or two ago and was like, whoa, this is like really bad. <laughs> like, oh my really, God. really, really, really inappropriate. Um, it was a different time. Different <laughs> times. Exactly. Meanwhile, the late 90s. Uh, anyway, putting aside my show choir PTSD uh, and back to the song Old Friends, at the time I was like, what the hell is this chipper upbeat Sondheim song that I don't know? I, I wasn't aware it was from a larger piece. I'm pretty sure I thought it was like some one-off song Sondheim had written for a concert or something. Um, fast forward like four years to my other favorite thing to talk about on this podcast, which was my college internship and subsequent post-collegiate job working at Musical Theater Works uh, down across from the public theater. So the artistic director of MTW was Lonnie Price. Lonnie, lo and behold, was one of the original cast members of Merrily We Roll Along, playing oh the character God. of Charlie. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Uh, when I first started my internship, I had absolutely no clue who Lonnie was, just like blithely unaware. Um, he's such an absolute sweet, kind, generous person. It was just like, oh, that's Lonnie. He's the artistic director of this little theater company. Um, because I was connected to MTW, not by choice, but chance. It was through this New York arts program, which connects the students to the organization for the internships. It took me weeks to figure out like, oh, wait, no, holy shit. This is like an actor who originated a role in a Sondheim show and then like went on to become a well-respected director who like literally knows everyone in the business, all of whom would walk like 10,000 miles for him because he's such a like talented, smart, kind man. It's again, it's so nice to not know things sometimes. Yes, you know? completely. It's so nice. Yeah. It's so good. Yeah. Cause actually, like, it's funny. Like, my experiences at MTW were 
kind of like when Mark on our recent episode was was talking about first starting out acting and, you know, being like getting like eight auditions a week and being like, oh, this is normal. Like, I absolutely 100% did not appreciate at age of 21, 22, 23 years old to like have met this insane roster of theater luminaries. And it was pretty much all because of Lonnie. Um, it was, you know, I was like, oh, well, I live in New York now. So, you know, this is just what happens. for example, it makes yeah. perfect sense that I'm producing a songwriting workshop in Adam Gettle's private loft while he plays selections to us from his new show, Light in the Piazza, on his baby grand piano. Um, you know, and I have like a hundred stories, which you know about because I knew you then. And I'm just like, and I think now and I'm like, oh, my God, how did that happen? But yeah, Youth it was is wasted on the young. <laughs> truly, truly. So but, true. <clears throat> but how it happened was because of Lonnie. Um, so back to Merrily, uh, MTW put together a gala every year to raise money. And Lonnie's big idea was to assemble a 20 year reunion concert of Merrily. We roll along. And because he's Lonnie, he managed to get every single original cast member. And it was not a small cast. It was like 25 plus people uh, to come to New York and perform, you know, for free for this one night only gala. Uh, And I should mention, you know, a lot of the, the, the actors in the original cast, they didn't really like go on to become actors, you know, partly part of because of their experience in the show. But there are some names in that cast. So, um. Tanya Pinkins who had like a small role and you know at that time she was already a Tony Award winner uh, for featured actress as Sweet Anita in Jelly's Last Jam coincidence Uh, and she had also had had a nomination for a Tony for lead actress for Play On ton of film and TV you know shortly after this she uh, you know was nominated for Caroline or Change in the title role oh yeah. okay okay, okay. Yeah, I that's probably how you I couldn't, I couldn't place her yeah, yeah, okay. uh, but yes. anyway anyways you know point being is that she came to do this little role and she was like you know pretty fucking big uh and on on that front the cast also included Jason Alexander as in George from oh Seinfeld my uh, my mind's a little fuzzy, but I, re- I remember assuming that he would be like a complete asshole with all of his TV money. I was just like, well, of course he would be. Uh, but he was actually like super nice and unassuming and like happy to be there. And I think like maybe even like wrote us a big check. So I, nice. I just read a, a, something about him and I don't know how the fuck I did because I'm not I'm not really like a fan of his. But okay. I read something very recently about how even oh. after he landed Seinfeld that he would fucking go and take acting classes oh, wow. and everybody in the place was like Whoa. kind of expecting what you just yeah, said. Yeah, yeah. He was either going to be an asshole gonna... or like what the fuck is he doing here? Or is he going to take over? Mm-hmm. Is he going to, you know, Land-bast. and it was not yeah. like that at yeah. all that he was like this super incredibly generous performer yeah. that kept thinking that he, you know, wanted to continue to work on his craft wow i love and that. and i do i it made me so like oh my god you yeah. know it made me really really like him well, that was yeah. totally my experience and i remember thinking uh, like you know i felt like a bad person because i just assumed he was going to be like some monster but yeah but it's also well, like it mean, does, you know his like he was so wonderful at playing that character who yes, is like yes a neurotic horrible person yeah <laughs> so i think yes. that probably like played into my assumptions how can that as not well. affect your yeah mm-hmm. of course yeah and the same thing is true when you see a person play someone incredibly nice oh, right on the screen it can also be jarring be fucking bitch oh, yeah. yeah i can yeah. definitely name a few of those um yeah. <laughs> anyway 
Uh, yeah. So, you know, people were scheduled to fly in from all over the country. We actually got like a shitload of local press because this was like, where was this? Ha- where did this happen at? Uh, the LaGuardia high school, of the performing arts. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, there was just like all this goodwill in the months leading up. Um, I remember our phones were just like ringing off the hook for people to get tickets because we were a tiny nonprofit. I was, in, of course, in charge of ticketing along with like 1,200 other things. But I remember every morning like coming in and checking the voicemail to see like how many more desperate theater queens had called in, like looking for ticket openings at the lower price tiers because it was a gala. So, of course, there were like super expensive right. seats. And then, right. you know, we had like a finite amount of like 50 or or $100 seats or something like that. And this was in like what two thousand and one? Two thousand two. Still two thousand two. Get so we were. It was like, right it was like the September cusp there. or two. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So it was at LaGuardia High School for the Performing Arts, right behind Lincoln Center, and it pretty much went off without a hitch. It was a really special night. Uh, Stephen and Hal were both there, and there was a small reception afterward at, in some like fancy room high up in Juilliard. Um, and it was small. It was like for the creatives and in the people, I presume, that paid top dollar. I could have walked up to Stephen Sondheim and int- introduced myself, but I had already been burned a couple times up, up until then meeting my idols. And I felt like very confident I would regret whatever I said later. So I didn't do it. And I'm like to this day still stand by that decision. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. That's good. I have never be once been like, I had the opportunity to go up and, and I didn't know every single time I've been like, that was the right decision. Yeah. 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 Uh, my only other memory from that, that reception though was, uh, was of course of Patty Lapone, who was also there when she was leaving, she took her coat from the coat rack and then walked back to the precipice of the room. Like in, like she was making an exit and like Evita or sunset Boulevard. She, she like threw her coat around her back and was like, I'm sorry, darlings, but I have to go back to Connecticut. Like for the whole party. Oh my God. <laughs> of course I was like dying laughing. You would have been <sighs> doing what you're doing right now, which is rolling yeah. your eyes. <laughs> yeah. Slow clapping, <clears throat> slow clapping. Yeah. So <clears throat> I'm going to take a couple of moments here just to fangirl a little bit about the score because okay. it's what I need to do. I know old friends. I know that yeah. song. And also, I think probably exactly like what you were describing. Yeah. I didn't realize. I don't even think that I knew that Sondheim wrote it until that special, hey. that his oh, birthday special oh, thing that happened at the beginning of the pandemic. Oh, yeah, they would have done that. Because I had I had known it before that. Yeah. But I, but I didn't well, it's a great that it song that you could like pull out. Yeah, because like, yeah, the lyric absolutely. is like, yeah, it's not so like uh, you know specific to. It'd be a great a funeral song, you know. Yeah, well, I'll remember that. Yeah. <laughs> 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 oh my goodness! Yeah. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Sorry. Um. <clears throat> so yeah, I did not know the score before like working on the show and the months we were we were putting together the reunion gala, the MTW staff started playing it in our offices and that's how I came to know and love it. I was pretty quickly like, how did I not know this? Um, it's definitely up there in my list of favorite Sondheim scores. It's just this big, brassy, classic Broadway score. It's like melodic as fuck. It's overall pretty up-tempo and the couple ballads in the mix are like utterly heartbreaking. 
there's so many moments that I love, but I'll just cherry pick a handful. Uh, I love the overture at the top. It seamlessly weaves together uh, all the major musical themes and just gets you excited as fuck, like all the best overtures do. It's this massive, no holds barred, no expense spared orchestra led by Paul Gemignani, who also came back to conduct the reunion performance. Wow. Uh, performance, and he does a lot of Sondheim work. <laughs> There's certain musical refrains that come up over and over throughout the score, like the title hook, which comes back here and there, often with like little lyric or music tweaks, and it helps to mark the passage of time since it's going, you know, it's sort of blazing through these 20 years of time. The first time we hear it, they sing, Yesterday is done, see the pretty countryside. Merrily we roll along, roll along, bursting with dreams. Traveling's the fun, flashing by the countryside. Everybody merrily, merrily, catching at dreams. Rolling along, rolling along, rolling along. Compromise is how you survive. It's how you give up. Compromise is the bottom line, let me tell you. Merrily we roll along, roll along. And if you know beforehand, if you know now that all that you're intending to happen Um, and that just, you know, come, comes in and like a lot of interstitial moments and like, and it's like musically different each time. Love it. Uh, love the song Franklin Shepherd Inc. Mostly because it's a tour de force for Lonnie. So every time I listen to it, I'm like, oh my God, it's Lonnie. I know him. Uh, his character, Charlie is live on air doing an interview where he furiously rants about the way his writing partner, Frank has transformed himself into Franklin Shepherd Inc. Saying he's obsessed with money and needs to focus more on the music. I love Lonnie's read of this line. Listen, he does the money thing very well, but you know what? Other people do it better. And he does the music thing very well. And you know what? No one does it better. Listen, he does the money thing very well. But you know what? Other people do it better. And he does the music thing very well. And you know what? No one does it better. Still, the telephones blink and the buzzers buzz, and I really don't know what he does, but he makes a ton of money, and a lot of it for me, right? So I think, okay, and I start a play, and he somehow knows, because right away, it's during! Hiya, buddy, want to ride a show? Um... I previously mentioned Old Friends via my megalomaniac, emotionally unstable show choir director. Uh, I listened to the full score the other day to prepare for this, and like... Definitely teared up in multiple places. One of them was weirdly here. The song just immediately brought to mind like a number of people in my life that are old friends. You know, like 15, 20, 30 year relationships. I was just like, wow, this is a really simple, effective tune. So love it. It uh, is. It is. Right? It's a great it's, it's a great, great song. song. Yeah. And like we said, you can just like excise it, just sing it anywhere. Um, but lest you think I've become too earnest, I really dig Now You Know, which sits in the story after Frank's wife leaves him, their son in tow due to infidelity. Uh, Mary, Charlie, and Frank's other friends console him, telling him to forget and start anew. My favorite section is Mary's advice to him, which is very much like shut the fuck up and move on. She sings... 
All right, now you know. Life is crummy, well now you know. Okay, big surprise, people love you and tell you lies. Bricks can fall out of clear blue skies. Put your dimple down, now you know. Okay, there you go. Learn to live with it, now you know. It's called flowers wilt, it's called apples rot, it's called thieves get rich and saints get shot, it's called God don't answer prayers a lot, okay now you know. Okay now you know, now forget it, don't fall apart at the seams, it's called letting go of your illusions and don't confuse them with dreams. Yes sir, quite a blow, don't regret it and don't let's go to extremes, it's called what's your choice, it's called count to ten, it's called burn your bridges, start again, you should burn them every now and then or you'll never grow, because now you grow, that's the killer is now you grow. Alright now you know, life is crummy, well now you know, okay big surprise, people love you and tell you lies, bricks can fall out of clear blue skies, put your dimple down, now you know. Okay, there you go, learn to live with it, now you know. It's called flowers will, it's called apples rot, it's called things get rich and saints get shot, it's called God don't answer prayers a lot, okay, now you know. Love okay, that. now you Love know. That. That's good. Eric, That's so really good. good. It's like, get on with it. Every time you have, have a horrific breakup, play that song. The most famous song from this show, which you definitely know, is Not a Day Goes By. Oh, the song appears twice in the show, but really hits me in the reprise. Mary, the character of Mary is holding this long standing torch for Frank. Uh, and this comes right after Frank announces his, his engagement, of course, to another woman. Is Frank the main character? Yeah. He's okay, like, okay, okay. yeah, he's the one that like sold his soul for money. Um, okay. With Mary, Charlie and Beth's disapproving parents looking on, the happy couple exchanges vows with, as a lovelorn Mary tries to swallow her feelings for Frank. A lot of people have covered this song, but for me, it's all Bernadette Peters all the time. I didn't even realize yeah. this, but she yeah. was actually a bonus track on the original album. I always thought that she just like, you know, after the production, like, you know, started covering it. Like, I had like no idea. She was like a bonus track on the original recording. But she wasn't in the production? <clears throat> no, no, no. How did that happen? I have no idea. We'll have to okay. rewind it. But yeah, okay. I was like, oh my okay. God, it's so weird. Uh, and I think Sondheim singing a demo of one of the songs is also a bonus track on it. It's very interesting. Uh, not a day goes by, not a single day, but you're somewhere a part of my life and it looks like you'll stay as the days go by. I keep thinking, when does it end? Where's the day I'll have started forgetting? But I just go on thinking and sweating and cursing and crying and turning and reaching and waking and dying and no, not a day goes by. Where's the day? But I just go on thinking and sweating and cursing and crying and turning and reaching and waking and dying. And no, not a day I mean, if that doesn't sum up the feeling of like loving someone and but like wanting it to stop because it can't be like i'm just not sure what does it's such a fucking good lyric i can't it is it is a good lyric i promise only two more uh opening doors i love this sequence in here frank charlie and mary are young and toiling away in new york working their way up the career ladder taking any job they can and working feverishly as uh, at their creative endeavors Sondheim claims this is the only autobiographical song he's ever written. He said, it's about all of us writers in the 50s knocking on the doors of producers and trying to get heard. 
uh, it's totally frenetic and it really evokes that feeling of being brand new to the city and just like you and your friends trying to take the take it all by storm. We're opening doors, singing, here we are. We're filling up days on a dime. That faraway shore is looking not too far. We're following every star. There's not enough time. We're opening doors, singing, here we are. We're filling up days on a dime. That faraway shore is looking not too far. We're following every star. Okay, last but okay. not least. The final scene of the show. I think, I mean, yeah. I have to say how ridiculous I think it is that someone would say that that's the only autobiographical I know. song. I mean, that's just like <laughs> silliness. Whereas silliness. like when we were talking about uh, Sunday in the Park with George, I was like, oh my God, this feels so autobiographical to me in yeah, like, so many exactly. ways. But exactly. It's a good it's sound like, bite. <laughs> it is. You know, you remember when John, uh, when he was um, understudying at Hartford stage okay. for the, the Edward Albee production, yeah. it was like Peter and Jerry. Well, it was called, wait, the zoo story. But then he wrote the the prequel to the zoo story. The mm. zoo story was the play that kind of put Edward Albee on the map. Yeah. It was a one act. And he wrote the prequel to that. And during the time there, he said he told John or he told like, I don't know, he probably did a talk back or several talk backs. And he told people that he, he never rewrote. He did not rewrite because he what? didn't put anything on paper until he knew exactly oh my God. what was going to happen and who everybody was. Yeah. And, but yet John would say then in the fucking zoo story, which was published in like, you know, 58 mm-hmm. or something, he was still, he was fucking changing lines for the production that was happening in New Haven. And I'm yeah. like, see, this is the kind of shit that makes me crazy because that I used to believe that. Mm. I used to believe that, well, you're not a writer if you have to change things after you write it down. Mm. Obviously, Fair it's been enough. a few years. But, but I mean, I, but I realize artists that. are a basket of contradictions. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean, that's a, a referencing our, our recent episode with Miss Brandy Burke. Exactly. I mean, okay. But, but I... I I'm sure that the song is terrific, and I'm sure that it was autobiographical. Oh, for sure. But, but it wasn't the only yeah, yeah, autobiographical exactly, song exactly, we ever exactly. wrote. We call bullshit Sondheim. I'm sure he's listening to this. Yeah, of course. Uh, I mean, I saw it, it actually. He's like, I am glad that guy didn't come up and talk to me at that. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a real dick. Um, okay. Uh, yeah. So, okay. So last but not least, the final scene of the show is our time and it's fucking brutal. After going backwards in time for 20 years and witnessing everything these characters are going to like that we know they're going to go through, we see them in a moment of innocence. Frank and Charlie are on the roof of an old apartment waiting for the first ever Earth orbiting satellite. Frank tells Charlie how much he likes Charlie's plays and proposes that they turn one into a musical. Their neighbor Mary arrives to view the satellite and meets the boys for the first time. She's heard Frank's piano from her apartment and tells him how much she admires his music, and he talks about how much composing means to him. Suddenly Sputnik is there in the sky, and for the young friends it's clear anything is possible. And then we hear this faint, plinking treble piano, which just sounds like hope and possibility. And Frank sings, Something is stirring, shifting ground, it's just begun. Edges are blurring all around, and yesterday is done. 
feel the flow. Here's hear what's happening. We're what's happening. Don't you know we're the movie we're the movers and we're the shapers. We're the names in tomorrow's papers. Up to us, man, to show them. It's our time. Breathe it in. Worlds to change and worlds to win. Our turn coming through. Me and you, man. Me and you. Something is stirring, shifting ground. It's just begun. Edges are blurring all around, and yesterday is done. Feel the flow, hear what's happening, we're what's happening. Don't you know, we're the movers and we're the shapers. We're the very, very effective moment. Um, it's there's also something okay. So I looked up, I have to read this really quick. Okay. This is from uh, this is about the play, okay. Um, and there's two things. First of all, it says Hart on a journey from Hollywood to New York in 1931 mm-hmm. was inspired to write a play about an American family's difficulty over 30 years, coping with the challenges of life in the 20th century, beginning with their innocence and optimism at the beginning of the century to the dashed hopes caused by the stock market crash of 1929. Before he could realize his vision, however, Noel Coward's British version of a similar story, Cavalcade, mm. premiered and he shelved the idea. A few years later, however, Hart turned to Kaufman, his collaborator on the 1930 hit Once in a Lifetime. The idea had now evolved to tell a story backwards about an idealistic yet ambitious playwright and his difficulties. So there's two things. A, it's interesting that there was a like we talking about the um, the wild party you know, oh, yeah, thing that like happened simultaneously. Simultaneous and it like, development of, yeah. Yeah, the, these two ideas works. were so similar. Mm-hmm. Um, so Hart and Kaufman <laughs> were writing something that Noel Coward had written in a, in a way. And also this idea of, of moving backwards in time, which mm-hmm. I remember doing this play Betrayal, which is a no, uh, not Noel Pinter, not Noel Pinter, Harold Pinter play. And it was, you know, groundbreaking because it moved backwards hmm. in time and showed this relationship um Unra- was it yeah. unraveling or raveling? No, unraveling. Unra- no. Wait. <laughs> <laughs> what? I don't know what you're trying to say right now. Unraveling, I assume. <laughs> but it you- was unraveled at the top and then it showed oh, it yeah, going yeah. backwards yeah, to being yeah. everything was yeah. good or the moment when everything started right. unraveling. Well, then you got the last five years where it's like. Oh, it's right. Like, which, right. Let's, let's. Do but the last five years forwards. is pretty new, and yeah. and and pin, the betrayal is probably from the seventies. But it had been done already by oh, yeah. by uh, Hart and Kaufman, and even there are no by this musical. There are no I know, new I know. ideas. Damn. I know, but I didn't know this specific story, so I yeah. um, I'm just saying I'm learning something, yeah. and it's very interesting. And I now really want to read the play and listen to this score. So I, the score that's is what, like, that's what this is supposed to do, yeah, right? The it's score supposed to inspire is extremely us to listenable. Want to it's know great. more? And not a super long listen. Um, there's been some other productions, if you care. But yeah, uh, over the years, with Firth and Sondheim's permission, the musical has been staged with numerous changes. And Sondheim has contributed new songs to several of the show's incarnations. So they sort of like tweaked at this over the over the years, which is, you know, not surprising given that it like flops so hard. You know, right, you right. know, where there's that tendency to be like, I'm going to fix it. Yeah, um, yeah. Prior to the, you know, reunion concert we talked about, which happened on September 30th, 2002. 
There was a streamlined off-Broadway revival that opened on May 26, 1994 at the York Theater in St. Peter's Church. Uh, it ran for 54 performances. That is evidently the version that gets produced now. Um, okay. There was an encore stage concert uh, at City Center, which ran from oh. February 8th, 2012 to, fe- to February 19th. Uh. I don't remember that at all. This production was directed by James Lapine and featured, guess who, as Charlie, Lin-Manuel Miranda. Uh, okay. Uh, totally don't remember that. Uh, and then there was another off-Broadway revival in 2019 by Roundabout Theater's resident company, Fiasco Theater, at the Laurel Pels Theater, which I did see. I still wasn't like, wow, about the show, but like the actors at least were like maybe in their mid late twenties, which I felt like, you know, enough that it worked. It was more appropriate. Right. I do remember that they like wildly sped up the tempo to not a day goes by, which made me completely irate. Um, Yeah. yeah, I was like, what are you doing? Uh, Generally though, the, the show isn't done all that often. And when it is done, it tends to be like a smaller affair, condensed affair. Um, Do you know about the documentary? No. no. Okay, so there's I'm a documentary. About, I feel like I just want to talk about New York City Center oh, yeah. because I feel like for such a long time I didn't even really understand what New York City Center was or that it existed. And <laughs> really? now, like, you know, no. Huh. I mean, it took a, it was years that I didn't really know exactly what New York City Center was. I had was. a job I think the interview. first time that you and I went was um, to see songs oh, from the songs New for World. New World. Yeah. Really? That was for the first time you've been there? I am pretty positive oh God, that's, that's the so first time I was there. And then I got a job as a teaching artist there like a year later. Oh, well, then I shouldn't that. say what I was going to say. No, I mean, oh, this God, was like a million years ago before I got a job where, you know, at the Met Opera, which is, I had a job interview there and the person that interview, interviewed me told me not to take the job. <gasps> oh, <laughs> really? Like the oddest job interview ever. Yeah. Wow. It was basically I mean... like the person that you would be working for, like um has gone through like six people in the last year and you seem like a really smart like i think i remember person. you telling me this so just but letting you know <laughs> and like that was that i was like walked out of there like oh my god that was so weird <laughs> that is that is crazy i actually completely forgot about that story until you brought up city center which i brought up anyway uh yeah, you brought it up i brought it up yeah um was that all you wanted to say about city yeah 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 yeah. uh but yeah i should see more of those encores things yeah when they come back i mean i told you that avita i wish you had seen that avita yeah of all of Mm. i mean i really think you would have been like okay Mm. that was a really good representation i would have given it a fair shot yes Mm. i think so it was so yeah it was great it was so beautifully done and so simple um so the documentary is called the uh, best worst thing that ever could have happened. Um, I don't remember what platform is on. It's on, but I'll tell you. Um, okay. Lonnie directed it. It and it portrays the thrilling, wrenching experience of the original production, as I recall, because it's been it's maybe been like a year and a half since I've seen this. It's a mixture of like footage from like way back when original of the original production and conversations with the actors now. It's a good watch because you go through this like roller coaster of everyone involved uh, with the original production, thinking they're work- working on this potential hit, and then like it all comes crashing down. Um, wow, it's really, really, really interesting. In the title, it's a playoff of uh, lyric in the show. Best thing that ever could have happened. Anyway, the best worst thing that could have happened. 
Uh, it's great. Um, so I was thinking like, could this show ever work? I mean, it's like, can this show ever work? Uh, it was like a really ambitious work. And that's one of the reasons that I love it. I mean, they certainly weren't phoning it in, in terms of reach kind of felt like art, like trying to execute for 15 years, the Mary Kay Letourneau right, teaching right. me to sing musical. Like, it just seems clear that they had this like on paper, like idea of what the show right. was going to be. And right. like that ending of our time, like totally nails it. Like they like get that. So, but it's just like, Oh my God, how do they like make the show overall like hit? So, so, but I read about the movie and like, then I was like, I had this, I have this like glimmer of hope that like maybe that will be the thing that gives the show its due. Cause I heard that when I heard the concept, I was like, Oh yes. Um, Cause in 2019 it was announced that Richard Linklater would be filming an adaptation Ooh. of the musical. Uh, and like his film, 2014 film boyhood, it would be filmed for more than a decade, what? allowing the actors to age with their characters. Oh, you didn't know about this? No. Yeah, so it's going to be really Ben cool. Platt, Blake Jenner, and Beanie Feldstein are attached uh, to play the three leads. And so I was like, oh, my God. Yeah, I think I made a joke at the beginning of the pandemic. I was like, I need to make it through this just so I can see the Merrily We Roll Along movie. Wow. Um, that's a really, that's right? really cool. I think that'll be yeah. like super cool. Yeah. I hope it works. Um, yeah. Lastly, I just want to say that this show, you know, I said, you know, I was like tearing up listening to it the other day. It really hits different for me now that I've had like essentially the same amount of life as these three friends. When I was first introduced to the show, I was like in the opening doors phase of my life in my early twenties. And now I'm like very squarely in the old friends phase of my life, Ugh. um, which is, you know, totally fine by me. As yeah, I can really appreciate the scope of the story much more. But it's funny, when I first saw the show, you know, because it's going backwards in time, I thought the characters that at the top of the show were old and bitter. And lo and behold, now I'm old and bitter. <laughs> 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 the circle of the This, life. too, will happen to you. <laughs> you, too, will become you. middle-aged and bitter. Oh, um, my God. Yeah. I didn't realize you didn't know about the movie. I, I, I'm no, like super excited I about it. I did not know about that. It does make me have to say out loud uh -oh. that I'm really annoyed that Ben Platt is playing Evan Hansen and Dear Evan Hansen because... Oh, yeah. Like, I just don't... I mean, we talked about that. We it's did, just, yeah. You know, it's like putting all those people from Rent in there 10 sure. years later. Like, why are you doing that? I mean, I yeah. think Ben Platt... I was floored devastated by his performance as you know we saw that of together. course yeah but i i just yeah. i think don't it's understand. time to turn the page on that one yeah because there's uh, a lot of other guys yeah. have you seen by the way another tangent about ben platt have, it's not ben platt but about Jeremy hansen okay. have you seen the um when the london production opened i guess they had they did this like morning show with like four evan hansen's oh. singing for forever and it's devastating you were overclumped it's like yeah the 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 boy that was in ratatouille that i was telling mm -hmm, you about mm -hmm. that was yeah. on broadway the the london guy um the toronto guy and then like 
a national tour hmm. guy. So there were four of them with, and they were take, you know, I'll send it to you. I'll send it to you. A little bit, but then there's like four, four fucking part harmony, which is just like money devastating. And you know, they all have those voices that can, they can hit those notes with like this much effort. It's, it's really, it's really beautiful. Buddy, you and I for forever this way. Yeah, Julianne Moore. Can Julianne Moore sing? Nobody knows. <laughs> we will see. We will see. I mean, if uh, Russell Crowe can be in a musical. <laughs> yeah, but that wasn't a good decision. <laughs> no, I know. I'm joking. It was horrible. I know. I know you're. I know you're. <laughs> it not was atrocious. I have faith in Julianne Moore. It. I feel like she can do. I mean, anything. she's amazing. I mean, she's I just. A, you know, <laughs> but we'll see but that mother, singing. the mother on Broadway was amazing yeah. and she could do it. Yeah. You know, I mean, I don't feel like I mean, I he sings so much in that show. I don't feel like she sings a ton, but you know, she, has she like, doesn't, but she has like, she has two, like two pretty sizable yeah, numbers. Yeah. yeah. But she could like weep her way through the last song. Like what's her name? That's oh true. My God, like Jesse Mueller. I, you know, implemented a lifetime ban after seeing her in waitress and she didn't really do it for me. But, uh, <laughs> Um, have you seen that boy? She just kind of like cried her way through. I think, you know, to be fair, I think maybe like, maybe like she just wasn't in like good vocal health that night, but it's like, she like didn't sing the song. She just like cried her way through it. Anyway, I think Julianne Moore could just cry her way through that last song. Yeah, maybe so. Oh my God. Now Jesse Miller boy, hates me. I'm sorry. I take it all back. Um, the boy. The, the, the young boy from Pittsburgh. The young like, boy from Pittsburgh. His mother recorded him singing the song and then it went viral. And then no. uh, Sarah Bareilles invited him. I have to send you the links to this. Actually, <laughs> we're going to wait so. and watch this in person because I want to okay. watch it with you. Okay. Because um, it's like devastating. I'm using that word a lot today. <laughs> okay. Sorry. I'm interrupting you and no, your wrap up. I wrapped up. Uh, they wrapped up All with right. Old and Bitter. All right. Uh, are you ready for some I'm ready hate? for some I'm hate. I'm not, I, by the way, I'm not hating on anything that you said. Okay. I'm actually quite curious yeah. uh, about it. And I feel like I should try to really give it its due. Yeah, you know, I just thought you would be disgusted. attention. Sometime, that's all. Well, I mean, no, I can't, I can't just be generally disgusted. Mm-hmm. That would be stupid. Um, I can be generally disgusted about Patty Lapone or, you know, there's many <laughs> topics, but that, but I can't be generally disgusted about that passion. I mean, I was disgusted about passion. So I can't believe that fucking one Tony. That's ridiculous. Yeah. For the shortest, um, shortest musical run. To God. Mm. That's crazy. Here we go. First, let me say, I honestly don't think I have ever hated anything more than what I am about to talk about. And you've waited until season two. I know. Well, that's crude hatred. You'll understand. You'll understand why in a second. 
So you remember when we were talking about The Handmaid's Tale, which yeah. obviously Torture the porn. first season brilliantly captures oh, yeah. Margaret Atwood's novel in the first season and then devolves quickly into something, yes, that we termed torture porn. <laughs> and it's such a precise definition for this absolute piece of shit musical that we actually saw together in the year 2000, smack oh dab in the newness of our relationship. You were compelled because of a certain musical personality, and I'm sure Uh-oh. that I was just compelled because of you. <laughs> but I don't remember dreading it or anything. I knew nothing about it, or almost nothing. It was award-winning. We both knew that. It was international, and it was the longest two hours and 20 minutes of my theatrical <laughs> life, which is saying something because I also sat through King Kong and the first oh. act of both Spider-Man and The Bridges of Madison County, all of which could be discussed on this very yeah, podcast exactly. at a later date. Peter Bradshaw of The Guardian dubbed it the most shallow and crudely manipulative film of 2000. Yes, this is a film. That's why you have, I haven't talked about it before, but I have now joined the Rule Breakers Club. And in 2009, (laughs) this same guy described it as one of the worst films, one of the worst artworks, and perhaps one of the worst things in the history of the world. (laughs) Oh, what a review. Sheesh. Do you know what this is? No. Oh, my God. You will in one second. That artist and musical personality is Bjork. In one of her only four film roles, aside, of course, from her extensive music video library. This isn't a musical. (laughs) She swore off ever making another film because of the horrendous experience of making this one. This was torture porn. It is the third in a trilogy by director Dogma95 creator and torture porn auteur Lars von Trier. And the film is, of course, Dancer in the Dark. Oh, my God. Yike. Have you watched this again? No, you could. I've never seen one of his films twice. Actually, after this, the only other film I saw of his was Breaking the Waves. And I was like, that's it. Like, I'm tapping out. Like, I am oh, done. Did we watch Breaking the Waves no, together? No, I or- saw that with okay. like Blanca Marsh, like visiting okay. her in Chicago. I was literally like, I am done with him. Yes. John and I had exactly the same response. And that w- that movie was like three hours and oh, 20 minutes long or something. Utterly and I was like, brutal. And it's so misogynistic. It's like, yeah. what was what was Emily Watson doing in that know. film? Like, I, like, Bjork didn't know any better. She had never been in a fucking correct. film before. And I thought and he about was seeing like, the Nicole Kidman one after that. And I was like, nope, nope, fool me once. Yeah. I well, like, I was going to watch the twice, Shia LaBeouf but... one because he had like there was full nudity and oh, I think God. like actually on screen sex in oh, it. Oh, God. I don't but even remember that. Even that, yeah, that I think I'm pretty sure that was like Nymphomaniac or something like that. I don't remember <laughs> for sure. But but even that didn't, I, I was no. like, I, I don't think I can do it. Oh, my God. So I have a <laughs> lot of shit to say about dark. this because it is so heinous. So it's really like, directed... I, I actually blocked this out of my memory. So I like can't wait to like be told what the plot was again <laughs> if there we is went one. we saw this on at union square uh-huh. at the like stadium seating uh-huh. and we were we were like probably two of you know 20 people sure. in this fairly large theater yeah. because nobody in america knew who this person was <laughs> no. and, i mean it was probably all bjork fans i'm mm-hmm. sure oh, that's the only I'm reason sure that anybody went. bjork fans So Lars van Trier is a Danish film director and screenwriter with a prolific and controversial career spanning almost four decades. 
Um, he started the Dogma 95 uh, movement with Thomas Vinterberg, and they created the Dogma 95 Manifesto and the Vows of Chastity. That's a, in mm. quotes. These were rules to create films based on the traditional values of story, acting, and theme, and excluding the use of elaborate special effects or technology, which, of course, is complete fucking bullshit in this movie, which is like a bunch. There was a lot of elaborate effects and technology mm. in all of these bizarre dance sequences. It was supposedly created as an attempt to take back power for the directors as artists, as opposed to the studio. I mean, all of that sounds very lovely and quite noble, I mm -hmm. will say. Um, I'm not really sure how any of that applies to <laughs> the work that he has done. But uh, admittedly, I've only seen a handful of uh, you know, three. Yeah. I think I think I saw one other film and I can't remember. Maybe Do was it Dogma? Is there? I think he also made a movie mm. called Dogma. Anyway, the music in the film is by Bjork. Um, by the way, I did not know this. She, her self-titled debut, Bjork. Yeah was recorded when she was 11 years old and was released in Iceland in December of 1977. So that was before the Sugar Cubes. Yeah, I was going to say, it must have been before Sugar Cubes. <laughs> And then well. I didn't actually, I didn't focus at all on her biography because mm -hmm. I'm sure that if you're listening to this, you either love Bjork and know everything about her or you're like me and you kind of just know enough. Mm -hmm. um, but I remember liking Bjork. Like I remember we watched that, what is that, that one song, Oh So Quiet? That's a fucking great oh, song. Oh yeah, that's um, like, there's like a gateway there's, there's, to Bjork. Is that? Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> Um, so this film was released in May of 2000 at Cannes and won both the Palme d'Or and Best Actress How? at the festival. <laughs> it was also nominated for two Golden Globes, Best Original Song and Best Actress, as well as an Academy Award for Best Original Song. And that's probably what most people know what it for. Was the is song? Um, the song, sorry, was I've Seen It All. Um, okay. And of course, okay. the big moment that probably most people remember is that was when she wore the very famous swan dress. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was made for a budget of twelve and a half million dollars <laughs> and went on to gross forty five point six million dollars. <laughs> I angry don't know audience how. members, angry audience <laughs> members, and most of them probably not in the United States. Mm -hmm. Just, just for clarity's sake, <laughs> it featured Bjork, Catherine Deneuve. As her best friend, Kathy, David Morse as her policeman neighbor, Joel Gray, which Joel I had completely forgotten about. That is fucking Udo random. Kier. Do you remember Udo Kier? He no. was in My Own Private Idaho. He no. was that weird guy. Okay, he's a German actor. Huh. He, he's had quite a career, actually. And Stellan Skarsgård, who you may know to be Alexander yeah, Skarsgård's father. father. Right. Um, Catherine Denova or whatever. Isn't she like a famous... like? French actress or something. Yeah, she's up. very famous. Yeah, I was like, yes. I feel like I know. She's her done a she's done a ton of, of okay. stuff. Um, so this is the IMDb summary. This is this is so fucking hysterical. An East European girl travels to the United <laughs> States with her young son, expecting it to be like a Hollywood film. That's the entire the whole description plot? of the film. Yeah, on I the, 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 the little like, like, tagline, getting hung the tag or line. something. So this is what really happens. I'm going to try to go through this okay. quickly, but it's it's 1964 Washington State. 
Selma, who is a Czech immigrant, brings her son, Jean, who is probably named after Jean Autry because she's obsessed with American musicals and believes that life is going to be like a musical in America. And they live a life of poverty because she works in a factory uh, oh, with her friend right. Kathy, played okay. by Kathy Deneuve. They live in a trailer home on the property of the policeman, the town the town cop, Bill Houston, and his wife, Linda. She, I don't know if it's Houston or Houston, probably Houston. She's pursued by Jeff, who also works at the factory. I don't remember who plays Jeff. Um, just just to, to, to lay the, the foundation, the dark, dark foundation, she has a degenerative eye condition, <laughs> and she believes that it's uh, genetic, so her son, Gene, is also going to go blind unless he receives an operation. She saves every penny that she makes except to basically feed them and house them in these squalid mm-hmm. conditions in a little tin box in their trailer to save for her son's eye operation. <laughs> um, meanwhile, she also rehearses for the sound of music when she's not at work what? because apparently she can sing and her bestie Kathy and her go see Hollywood musicals to escape from reality. Also, just so you know, when they go see Hollywood musicals, Kathy has to describe what's on the screen because basically (laughs) Selma is already blind. And she also has to help her at the factory because she can't really see what she's doing, even though she's operating large, dangerous machinery. How? Yes. How is that even possible? she gets through her very difficult life by daydreaming she's in a musical, which is where all of the New York Penn songs pop in. So one day... Her neighbor, Bill, pops over to reveal that his wife lives above their means and they're getting ready to lose their home. And thus, probably Selma will also be kicked off their property because she lives in a trailer that he also owns. Mm -hmm. Um, She, in simpatico, reveals to Bill that she's going blind. Then Bill pretends to leave. But he doesn't. I remember this scene so clearly (laughs) when I was when I was thinking about it. It was making me so fucking angry. So he pretends to leave this little tiny trailer, which is like, what, a four foot by seven foot room. She can't feel that this hulking man Mm -hmm. is still there in her presence. And she goes and finds the tin box and puts the money in it where that she's been holding in her her person. Do you remember this moment? And puts the money in there to to save for her uh, for her son's eye surgery and then puts the box back. Well, of course, Bill, who is in financial straits. (laughs) comes back while Selma is at work, steals the money. Selma comes home from work where she has just been fired because she has destroyed a machine because she can't see and realizes, goes to the tin to put her last savings in and realizes that all the money is gone. Goes over to to Bill, but is first uh, (laughs) stopped by his wife. And his wife says, uh, accuses Selma of coming on to Bill and trying to have an affair with him. And Selma, even though she's obviously very upset and uh, about many things, <laughs> refutes this, but doesn't reveal that bit what Bill has said because she's, of course, she's, she's like, you know, you know the heart she's of gold. an upstanding she's citizen <laughs> with a heart of gold, exactly. But she manages to f- claw her way upstairs to where Bill really is and confront him about it. Um, somehow, she gets the gun from Bill. <laughs> shoots bill she actually shoots she How? shoots him like five times yeah. but she misses like four, four of the five times she can't see and then mm-hmm. manages to 
kill him by beating him to death with a safe deposit box, even though she can't see and she has missed firing him with a uh, shooting him with a gun four times. And he's like four oh, times. I was her definitely size. like angry by this point in the movie. It was we like, were both. I can't believe we stayed, actually. I, yeah. I mean, I was surprised. I don't know if I knew you were as angry as I was, but I was. So so after she bludgeons <laughs> Bill to death with a safe deposit box, again, Bjork is probably what? Like 5'2"? Yeah, weighs diminutive. 85 I've seen pounds. seen her at the opera before. Like, she is not a Hulk. And Bill, Bill is played by... Um, by uh david morris who's probably like six one mm. and like you know a very hearty looking guy yeah um <laughs> bludgeon she she bludgeons <laughs> him to death bludgeons him to de- bludgeons him to death and then scurries off to sound a music rehearsal <laughs> it's like at this point you're like how am i supposed to take this seriously we we <sighs> the, the the musical number i i have to jump into um, the musical number, which is called... Oh, God. Uh, I mean, as you're saying this, it sounds like something I would enjoy for camp value, but it was none of that. It was just, like, exhausting. Yeah. Okay, sorry. I will finish the plot. So basically what happens is... She, yeah, it was like, how did she up, get They arrest her. Hang they arrest her. We don't understand how exactly, but everything comes out. And, all, and the, the good news is, is that they realize what's happened. She gets the money back, mm-hmm. which she gives to her friend Kathy. So Kathy runs off with her son Jean to have a successful eye operation. And Kathy mm-hmm. tells Selma right before the trap door opens, as and she is killed in the middle of a song, and that's how that's how the movie ends. But why, like, how or why, how is she killed? She's hanged. Oh, wait, for her crime, yeah, for for bludgeoning Bill to death <laughs> oh, with a safe right. deposit okay. box. Okay, she's just immediately hung <laughs> for her crime. <laughs> well. I was like, is there like a trial or? There is a trial. There is a lot that happens in the song. Well, I'm going to go through this song okay. really quick. So there's seven songs in the musical mm-hmm. um, that are all like I, I said, really would not call this a musical. But yeah, I guess it is. Um, the score is sold as Selma songs, by the way, mm-hmm. not as Dancer in the Dark by Bjork. It's a separate thing. Hmm. Um, I this is I was listen. I listened to all of this. Oh, I'm sorry. And I have to say that the music was pretty fucking interesting. I mean, it probably was. Especially three great. numbers. Uh, and, and and fortunately, you can actually watch just the numbers mm-hmm. on YouTube. They have, like, you can just watch the musical numbers. Okay. And if you were just watching the musical numbers, they're kind of like, I mean, Bjork is a weird artist. Yeah. She's, you know, visually, she's really strange. She does shit all over the place. She's always, nothing is enough, you know, there, it's not, there's not a lot of linearness in any oh, of her no. storytelling. For sure. It's all kind of over. And so when you, when I watched, um, I watched four numbers, no, five numbers of the seven. So there's overture, the overture she wrote. And then the first number is, I don't know how you pronounce this. It's C-V-A-L-D-A. Cavalda. No I don't know. No. This is super weird shit. This is this was actually a pretty interesting number. It was um, at the factory, and it's this you know sort of fantasy moment mm-hmm. at the factory, and it kind of starts off with um, all of these weird factory noises. Okay. So it kind of feels like the adding machine. Have you ever seen that play? No. It's like you know women typing, and it's like 
and there's all these, it, and then it kind of creates this cacophony of sound like, by all of these. It's like Dolly Parton with her fingernails, a nine to five. Anyway, exactly. <laughs> An and the typewriter, like, exactly, exactly. Of that, but yes, exactly. I understand what you're saying. That number is is pretty fun and pretty interesting. Um, that's the strange little factory number. Mm. Then there's the Oscar nominated tune "I've Seen It All," which was actually sung, I guess, on the soundtrack with Tom York, who is the lead singer of Radiohead. Radiohead yeah. He wasn't part of the. Um, he wasn't. His voice was not in the film. However, okay. it was, I believe, her boyfriend. So this is a completely different musical number. This is like all American, mm-hmm. Oklahoma quality to it. There's a train. There's a bridge. There's cowpokes mm-hmm. and and people bailing hay and like it's like mm. you know kind of like this weird hoedown sequence, which is also um, quite fun and bizarre when you just take it out of it's out of the film itself i mean of course the song is called i've seen it all and at the (laughs) end of the sequence her her the beau the guy who's in love with her jeff says you can't see can you which then you realize that you're back in the fucking film which is absolutely horrible um but i would recommend watching the video of i've seen it all Mm -hmm. from the film Then there's Scatterheart, which is a real loser one of the of the of the what is it seven, seven. of the seven songs. Um, this is the moment after she's bludgeoned the cop with a safe deposit box. He gets up, goes to the sink, washes the blood off of his head, oh, and then they do this strange modern dance. Do you remember this? Vaguely, it's like so I, said, I really think awful. I blocked most of this out of my my head. So awful. Okay, then this is where all of this fucking story happens which is the song called in the musicals again it's a just it starts off in the rehearsal hall she has managed to get there after killing the cop and doing the strange dance with him after he washes his head off um she gets arrested she gets taken to so there's this this bizarre kind of um uh modern dance sequence that happens in the rehearsal hall then suddenly they're in the courtroom and she's like walking along the edges of the jury box and you know walking on the like it's so bizarre and then joel gray has his big moment and does a tap dance does he play a character i'm so confused he does play a character but i don't really understand exactly who his character is and i was always there to catch you Fall 
and it but it of course it just like condenses all of this this sort of action into like, into like number. four minutes and then all of a sudden she's in the final song which is 107 steps and this is literally <laughs> her counting yeah. how many steps it is until she gets to the platform where she's yeah, hanged that i do remember yeah. <laughs> So this, okay, I'm almost done. I'm almost done. Oh my God, I hate this film so much. It was supposed to be Lars von Trier's first attempt at a musical and is described as being an anti-musical film that deconstructs the genre Hmm. as all of the musical numbers only happen in Selma's head and don't occur as a narrative plot point or to fix any conflicts in the story. Hmm. Now that's, this is from Wikipedia, but that's not actually true because this, the song I just described does, does propel us through, yes, it Mm -hmm. furthers the plot. Um, his, the first draft of his screenplay, going back to your, um, your Joel Gray question, um, was called Taps and featured tap dancing in every scene. Oh, my God. Choreographer Vincent Patterson convinced Von Trier that it would be far too difficult, if not impossible, to teach someone as techni- something as technical as tap dancing <laughs> to Bjork and the other cast members within a reasonable period of time. So Von Trier rewrote the screenplay so that the songs would be more in the style of traditional Hollywood musicals, but retained some of the tap dancing motif with the character of Aldrich Novi played by Joel Grey. Hmm. I don't really understand what other purpose Oldrich Novi has, but Joel Grey does tap dance hmm. in the courtroom on one of the, uh, I think on the prosecutor's table. He was like leftover from the first draft, this character. Um, this is where it gets fun. And I don't know if you ever remember reading any of this shit, but Lars von Trier and Bjork. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I do remember that. Like the this it took Lars horrific is, experience filming this. Yeah, I it took that. Lars von Trier a whole year to convince Bjork to play the lead role. She had agreed to write the music, but but then yeah. he, I think after oh, he like got her to yeah. sign on with the music, then he was like, "Oh no, you should just play this role." And she's like, "I'm not an actress." Mm-hmm. He's like, "Of course you're an actress." Lars von Trier has said that each morning before filming, Bjork would say, "Mr. von Trier, I despise you," <laughs> and spit at him. <laughs> 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 oh my goodness Lars von Trier yeah. in retaliation described working with Bjork as working with a terrorist to <laughs> emphasize their antagonistic <laughs> relationship oh I love that <laughs> and then um, even Bjork's manager Derek Burkett uh, said I have worked with Bjork for over 30 years and have never made a single statement or interview regarding our work together this time is different over the last 30 years, the Dancer in the Dark project is the one and only time she has fallen out with a collaborator hmm. and basically just said, I back what she has said 110% and Lars yeah. Trier is a fucking liar and wow. a terrible person, <laughs> which I think that most people who have worked with him have said it was, you know, akin to like a painful experience. experience. Yes. Like they don't necessarily, not all of them regret doing it, Mm -hmm. but they, no no one is like, Oh my God, that was like, you can't wait for the next one. Or exactly. Exactly. Maybe, 
Shia LaBeouf because, you know, that's the kind of person that he is. <laughs> but I don't think any of the other people that have worked with him yeah. have, have gone back except for, well, except for I Terry think there's, Hatcher. there's probably oh, Terry, a big Terry difference Hatcher's between stuff. the men and the women. Oh, no question. I'm sure. No question. Totally. Because Skellen, is it Skellen? Stellan. Skarsgård. Yeah, I don't know. Stellan. Stellan Skarsgård has, has been in like seven of his films mm-hmm. or something, but whatever. You know, he's like a massive... Um, is he? He's Swedish, right? Skarsgårds are Swedish, or are they Danish? I don't know which. Of oh my god! The Northern European. Today's okay. uh, theme is geography. For geography. <laughs> We're gonna do a big rewind on geography. About what are so continents my... versus countries versus <laughs> like what are the countries in Northern Europe? In which one? So is my... from? <clears throat> in summary. Unless you want to scream with rage for two hours and 20 minutes, do not watch this film. You could not Um, pay me to watch this again, like beginning to finish. Like I'll totally actually, now that we've had this conversation, I'll go and watch some of those YouTube videos. But yeah, those three, those three videos are, are pretty entertaining. And the songs Mm -hmm. are really, I like them Mm -hmm. actually. They're, they're interesting songs. I mean, I like most of Bjork's music. So, well, you, you really, you like, you've seen Bjork, right? Uh, weirdly, I've only seen her once. I went with Casey McClellan after her to Radio City City after her Vespertine album. Uh, and I had to pee in the middle of the concert. And, and Casey was like, just go, just go, just go out there. And we're like in the middle of like an aisle. So I'm like, I think I like obnoxiously had to like climb over people. And then I was like confused because like the lights are out and I like go over to the staircase and then there's like a door right there. And he's like, and I'm looking over at like Casey confused. Did you walk? And he's did like, you go just go out the, the door, street? just go out the door, like motioning to me. So I open the door and realize that I'm like literally outside. Like I have like opened like an exit door and there's like light, like coming into Radio City and everyone's looking at me like, what the fuck? So I like rushed back in and then like, wait, oh, no, okay, realized okay. like, so I didn't get locked out. Thank God. God, I was really thinking you were going <laughs> to oh say my God, that would have been horrible. Uh, especially because I was really excited about this concert, which was like amazing. It was like a it was like a huge number of musicians, and I loved that album. So, um, but no, I did not thankfully okay. get locked out. But we laughed about it for quite a did bit. Did she sing anything from Dancer no, in the Dark? No, <laughs> no, I don't know if she's ever. I mean, I'll have to look it up. But she but probably I like, never I'm has sure again. She's never sung any of those songs again after that. Oh my god, that experience. Oh. Mm. I mean, we, I'm so sure horrible. we've set some of our songs to pasture, but... Uh... Oh, many, <laughs> many. I mean, yeah. I mean, sometimes but, I'll oh, be like, there... I forgot about that song completely. Yeah, mm. yeah. So anyway, that is Dancer in the Fucking Dark. Wow. Do not watch it. But you could watch those few clips wow. or listen to them. Well, that well, was not a musical but since I've broken the rules it so many times, was a musical. <laughs> um, well then, until next time. Until next time. Lovely to chat with you, Mr. Schneider. Lovely, Lovely as always. I'm gonna go be old and better now. Bye. Bye. Bye.